We're the Sweeney, son, and we haven't had any dinner. Have you seen me dice bag? Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. This is the second part of episode 52, which is all about Gangbusters, the 1982 RPG produced by TSR. And this features all the bits that didn't quite fit into the first bit. And there's a lot of it. So I'm not going to keep you here for long. Brace yourself. It's a two brew and a packet of Hobnov's length. Like I always say, take your time. Do it at your own pace. You can even skip the noise of the pub if you don't like to battle with the jukebox. If you move it along about 40 minutes. I have Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, with me in the snug at the Lasser Gallery in Manchester, where we scrutinise some of the features of the game that we think are interesting, whilst Liam Gallagher sings along in the background. The beauty of a magazine format is if you don't like one bit, then you can zub along to another that you might. Another feature of the format is that we can introduce a new segment to brighten things up. And new for season two is a brand new feature starring members of the Grog Squad. I've named it Appendix G. Over the coming episodes, I'll be inviting enthusiastic contributors to talk about films, TV, music, comics and literature that has influenced and inspired their gaming over the years. The absolute highlight of this podcast is Vaughan Allen, talking to me about Sweeney and the Delta Green campaign that he's running that's been inspired by the programme. It's excellent stuff. Because we're in the realm of genre emulation, Blythe also joins me in the groggle box to look at the -the over-the-top 1987 blockbuster The Untouchables. Sorry, Ed didn't join us in the shed because he doesn't do gangsters, but don't worry, he'll be back soon. At the end, we grab our coats and make some closing remarks before I return here with a quick hint about what comes up in the next podcast. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Judge Blythe, rules! Welcome. Now, and you must forgive us, we've come and knocked three times and asked for Luigi and they've let us in. We've already broken... Our listeners' prohibition that was enforced on. We're in the pub. We're back That's in the pub. Back at the pub. It's like we can't keep away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. They shut them for two years, more or less. Yeah. Give us a break. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to have to uh, tolerate us speaking and all the hub, bub, and bubble happening in the speakeasy as we speak. We can't speak easy because. We can't speak easy. We've got to speak quite loudly to drone out. <laughs> Oasis or whatever it is it's playing yeah Stone Roses or whatever if we get boring you can tune into that so um, Judge Blinded we're having a look at Gangbusters Gangbusters yes it's very fitting because as a games master do you know what you referred to in here a judge a judge a judge yeah Yeah. Yeah. finally you've got your uh, your always makes me laugh in role playing games when they do that so they take 
the, the style of game that it is and call the game master something fitting that you know yeah. the judge yeah because it's like you might end up in court so with judges so call them judge yeah very clever yeah, yeah very good yeah one of the things that happens in uh, gangbusters in the forward somebody was uh, related to a G-man mm. uh, it actually was it was actually a G-man one of the untouchables yeah. writes the forward and what he does he looks at the rules of the attributes of characters in gangbusters yeah. and he and he confirms that the use of muscle toughness investigative mind there's a, an equivalence for a gangster and for a police officer so he confirms that both a police officer and a criminal have the same attributes. Sorry, I was thrown then because the man came in. He looked like he was going to join us. He's gone now. Uh, they had the same attributes. They had the same, they, they, two sides of the same coin. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's, They're that's, one and the same. It's just chosen different paths. Different life, paths in life. Yeah. Life, yeah. The, the policeman could have so easily become criminal and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it figures, doesn't it, I suppose. And I suppose it confirms that the attributes that make up characters in gangbusters mm. are the correct ones he's confirming that in his experience the muscle punch rating he's confirming that all those things are true all those true oh. is, is he? I don't know yeah and he's an untouchable so well, well, I won't argue with him then <laughs> arrest me so you've got your primary attributes of muscle agility observation yeah. driving and they're all expressed as driving. Inter- interesting. That's like a key stat, isn't it? Driving. Yeah. It's quite fitting because they, they, they've got the, they've got the amount of good angle on the game there, haven't they? Because driving is going to be part of it. It's going to be part of it. Car yeah. chases. Part of it. The stats are built around the theme of the game, aren't they? Yeah. And um, they're expressed as a percentage, and um, for and it covers most things, doesn't it? So yeah. you use your agility. If yeah. you're shooting, your muscle will be fighting. Yeah. So you can cover most grains. You can. The fella's hovering again. He's hovering. He's a fella. If you, if you can see it, you can't see it because you're listening to a podcast. Do you He's hovering around. He's coming to the dumbwell, looking in. And then just make your mind up. Make your mind up. Do you, is he coming? One of the feds. Well, well the I don't know what he is, but he's putting, is he me, off, putting me off me judgingness. <laughs> He's throwing at me, judging us. I'm about to judge rules here, pal. Clear off. Oh, come in. I'll Make come your in. mind up, please. Yeah. Nothing worse. Right. <laughs> Is it making you anxious? Well, it's just, I can't stand people hovering in their doors. You know, like, you know, you know. You know. The kids do it, kids do it at home. Stand near the door and have a conversation. Come in and sit down and have a conversation. I'll go to your room. Don't, don't do that. He's doing that. Well, I can't see him because... I know I, you can, but I can't. He's, he's gone away, man. I think he's. I think he's hoping he's found a seat somewhere. It's a big enough pub, isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, anyway carry saying, on. Sorry, <laughs> it's inside to my weird anxieties. <laughs> Many of them. Anyway, as I was saying, the characters are, are made up of uh, attributes, and they express as a percentage. And you have a certain set of skills as well that you can get that are relevant to your yeah, class yeah, yeah. but it's mainly percentage based yes yeah. it's a kind of simple system really isn't it it's just percentage based yeah I mean the stats I think the st- 
this this isn't going to be the rule I don't like, but I do think the stats linked to the stats being the skills and the percentage thing is a little bit odd in that some of the stats can be quite high. So, for example, agility is used for shooting, isn't it? Yeah. And when we played it, I think Buki's character had an agility of 97. Yeah. And you think, you're 97% at shooting. I mean, that's ridiculously high, isn't it? So there is a bit, it's a bit odd as well. I suppose as well, it can be ridiculously low, which seems odd. And that's because he didn't go through the character creation process. I don't know if you recall mm. this, but what you actually do is roll the D100. That's right. Yeah. No, no, I remember that. That's kind of what I'm driving at. It, yeah. Yeah. I remember that you roll a D hundred for the stat. Now, that just seems such a broad range of numbers that seems a bit stupid because you could roll a ninety. And there, there you go. Yeah. I'm a crack right from word go. You're a crack shot with a gun, or you could roll what a thirty or a twenty. And, if, and it, if it if it it gets adjusted though, it's a bit like remember top secret. Yeah. yeah. So if you got a thirty, you'd add fifteen. So that'd be a forty-five. Towards so, get ninety. So you get 90, you don't add anything, but you just what? get a straight 90. What? Wait on, why not? So if you get a 90, you get a 90. Yeah. But if you get 30, you get 15. You get a plus 15. Oh, plus 15. Oh, I see. So Yeah, you can see, yeah. it stops you getting really low. Yeah, it stops low. you getting a really, really low one. Yeah, but it does, it, they do range though, because obviously... Yeah, it does. It's, they did when we played it. I, was a, I, I, I don't remember that from when we played it with Simon, but when we played that game the other week I thought mm, yeah you know, that's a bit of an odd it is a bit odd that yeah for some of them are conspicuously low yes yes and others are like yeah. really high and, I, su- and I, I suppose it's not too bad having an agility of 90 if that then feeds into skills as some games would do but it doesn't feed into skills it essentially says shooting is agility and agility is shooting so it's high if it's high you're going to be brilliant at everything linked to that skill that's slightly problematic, I suppose. Well, I yeah. found it a bit problematic. But I, I quite like um, how it's like that old school idea of just using a few attributes yeah, yeah, to cover yeah, lots yeah. of things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, the skills are very specific, so they like things like wiretapping or yeah. um, things that you would have to have skills to acquire or technical knowledge to do. Yes. Kind of yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think I had. What did my character have? The um, ha- analysing handwriting? Uh, yeah, graphology. Graphology, yeah, graphology, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Didn't did use it. Like did that. it come up? No. It did come up because I think I spent my time shooting people, being shot at, and crashing a car. <laughs> didn't get a chance to start. I think my handwriting, my handwriting, I think the character's handwriting was a bit shaky probably after crashing the car and being shot with Tommy but staggering through the streets, bleeding. But, you know, didn't get a chance to. But if you had the chance, you would have been able to do it. Yes, I could, I could have looked at the hammer and said, "This man's been shot." Hydrology <laughs> <laughs> skill. Okay, so you know the format. I do. We've been doing it for long enough. Mm-hmm. So you we need to pick uh, three highlights of the rules that you want to talk about. Yes. And uh, one duff thing that you want to uh, talk about. So what are your three highlights? Number one. I think the first one is wounds and bruises. Wounds and wounds bruises. And bruises. Wounds, and bruises. wounds and bruises. You have not, to repeat not it. Not stars and wishes. <laughs> wounds and bruises. Wounds and bruises. It'd be better that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Can you tell me what your wounds and bruises are from this game? I like it, yeah. Wounds and bruises. That's yeah. that. That's wounds a, and bruises. Wounds and bruises. And uh, the second one? second one is presence. Yeah. Presence. presence attribute. Yeah. 
which is works a little differently than all the others. Yeah, it does. It, yeah, it does so you different. get that from a D10 yes. rather than a D100. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, uh, and I suppose as well some of the kind of supplemental. If I can be some of the setting rules, I think is probably the best way. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Some of the setting rules. Yeah, because they're quite uh, detailed at the back, aren't they? So that's good. And I think quite important, given that you might not necessarily know that much about some of the details of the world I mean, you know like the world of crime you know you think you know about gangsters but but particularly when we were younger what do you know about gangsters really? yeah yeah <laughs> what do i know yeah maybe not as much as i think yeah so it's like a day-to-day how to make a day-to-day crime work yes mechanically how organized crime works yeah it's way. putting some organized organization around organized okay. crime so organization around crime therefore organized 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 crime yeah <laughs> so and, and then what's your what's your um, be a duff one you won't like this because you don't like it when I talk about guns in role playing but I am going to say the gun the rules on guns oh, yeah. yeah I know I know we asked him they, they, oh, they're right, no okay. good they're, right, well, they're no good it's a bit of a major flaw in the game I think but, I, I disagree so I look forward well, you, to disagreeing with you, you. Disagree, right okay right. well let's get <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, do the first one then wounds and bruises wounds and bruises I picked this because I think and I think we, we thought this at the time a lot of role playing games particularly then just had hit points so you've got hit points and if you get hit you lose hit points yeah and when you get to unarmed combat the standard procedure in most role playing games of the day and even now sometimes is if you hit with a punch you just take less damage so if someone punches you I don't know, you take a D2 damage, don't you? But if you stab you, you take a D4 and if you with a sword, you get a D8, whatever. Um, but what Gangbusters does, it splits the um, damage, isn't it, into wounds. So if you get shot or stabbed, you get a wound, don't you? Mm-hmm. But if you get punched, you get a bruise. And the bruises aren't as severe as the wounds. Uh, and you, you can't, you, you can end up dying, but you can't really die from bruises. Yeah, well, you're just going to end up knocked out, aren't you? The way it works is that all uh, gunfire causes wounds. Yes. Um, hand-to-hand fighting causes bruises, yes. but if you're using weapons, there's a chance that it could cause a wound. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and your uh, bruises, uh, it, it comes really from punching, yeah. uh, which is a fixed amount based on your is an attribute that you roll at the start. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. But I, I, li- I like it because I think it, it lends itself really well to this kind of game, where it is a game where you might end up in a punch-up rather than a gunfight. Gun yeah. It's more, you know, RuneQuest or Traveller or those other games we were playing at the time, the idea of being in a fistfight, kind of unlikely, wasn't it? RuneQuest, yeah. more likely to draw your broadsword and try and kill somebody. But yeah. in a game like Gangbusters, punch-ups are more... Pre- prevalent. More prevalent and they're yeah. going to act now, aren't they and it, yeah. it deals with that in a, in a really good way it would have been very easy for them to say oh well punch, being punched is less, just as less damage than other weapons but they don't do it like that and yeah. that is very clever actually yeah. particularly for the time you know again it's it's not maybe not now but back then in 1982 that was quite clever I think yeah I think the uh, wounds management in general is quite good mm. because you do have the um death spiral as well so if you take so many hits yeah. um, you start uh, reducing your uh, ability to do things yeah. um, 
But yeah, I think um, what it allows them to do as well with the uh, bruises is that the fight, the fist fighting and the hand-to-hand fighting, it's quite sophisticated. Yeah. You've got a few tactical choices. Well, you've got the fighting dirty and fighting clean thing, haven't you? Yeah. Which yeah. again is a really neat rule. You think, you know, if you're a policeman, law-abiding policeman, you're going to fight clean and the mobster's going to fight dirty. Yeah. Or you could be a copper who fights dirty. Could, could be, yeah. couldn't you, but... Yes, yeah, so it gives you that moral a moral choice in a punch up. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So you're going to go for uh, the Queensbury rules, where uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, oh, you're going to be chance. biting people's ears and yeah, biting ears and Gouging. kidney punches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I, I think they're great. The com- clothing, unarmed combat thing, great. Not too complicated, but there's enough because you do sometimes get that in some games, don't you? Where yeah, you get unarmed combat rules that just get really complicated. Yeah. The, grap- the actual grapple rules are quite straightforward. For once, the grapple rules are okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is straightforward, but it adds a bit of colour to it and it, it makes it different from a gunfight. Yeah. You know? I was rather hoping in that sample game we had that we'd end up with some kind of fist fight. Yeah. But you soon got to the heavy artillery. I think from the first five minutes, you, yeah. you wanted uh, some, some machine guns. <laughs> We <laughs> tried to get them and failed miserably all yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> which brings us on to the next uh, thing, which presence, is presence. Yeah. Yeah. Presence is uh, it's an interesting rule because it's like a reaction skill, isn't it? So it's a skill. Mm. It's like charisma. I, you could say it's like charisma. But I think the game puts a bit more emphasis yeah. on it than other games, and rightly so. So, again, going to back in the day, you used to have the react monster reactions in D and D and all that kind of thing, didn't you? And yeah. But in in Gangbusters, you roll and then you you add your presence, don't you? And that kind of thing. Well, so well you, you can subtract. Yeah. So so you you um, subtract the highest from the lowest, That's and true. that adjusts the NPC yeah. reaction table. Yeah. And you roll the two yeah. two D10s on yeah. the NPC reaction table, and uh, lower is the worst result. Yeah. 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 All right. That, but it, yeah. it makes a, quite a good job of it and I think it's interesting how it focuses on that because it's an again a bit like fist fights it's an important aspect of the game in a game like this isn't it yeah. because you are going to spend time talking to people Yeah. unlike other games of that era which you wouldn't you know yeah. you would have you know again a, a kid who buys D&D AD&D as it was advanced D&D would have spent time fighting monsters if you buy Gangbusters as your second game, you're going to need a bit of a steer, aren't you, in terms of how you deal with NPCs and talking to people, because it's going to crop up more. And they do a good job of that, I think, building some rules around that are not just a simple reaction table, but they build rules around how, intera- how NPCs are going to interact with you and how they're going to talk to you and how they're going to respond to you and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it is a quite a good rule, really, particularly, yeah. again, for this era. Yeah. I think it works well, um, particularly because in the book they give um, some good advice on how to apply it. As a standard, I've been applying it. So two games that I ran, so the one I ran face-to-face a few months ago and the one I did online, I tended to use the NPC reaction table, but you don't have to. No. Because in the um, rules, they kind of say, well, if you're dealing with people in certain professions, they've got an obligation to do things yeah. so you you may not have to roll on this NPC reaction table or there's certain circumstances where you as a judge 
might it's say, yeah. actually, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to predetermine how this guy's yeah, going to react. You know they're going to react. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So but I think, it, think the advice for uh, judges in here is, uh, is good. Yeah, and it, it's useful. The, the reaction role rules are useful because I think, as you've said, some of the scenarios do have that sandbox equality to them, don't they, where things happen irrespective of what the players do, which suggests in turn the players could be doing other things in yeah. Lakefront City. So you do need some rules for kind of ad hoc reactions Yes. Which you might not be prepared for because they decide they're going to go here or going to go there. Yeah. And they're going to meet someone that you've not prepared in your role and reaction table. In, in play, it can produce some humorous results. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think there's a few uh, extreme results, wasn't there, in uh, the game that we played? There was, yeah. I think my commanding off, I wanted Tommy Guns and the commanding off, I offended him, didn't I? Yeah. I offended him by asking. Well, I think the result was violent and hostile attacks regardless of situation. So, really, <laughs> I go to the chief of police, ask for Tommy Gun, he attacks me. He says, <laughs> oh, one of, you mean one of these Tommy Guns? He shoots me. <laughs> And I think I think the way we played it I think out you was you had to argument that real slightly, didn't you? <laughs> By toning it down. I toned it down. I think he threw the Bible at you, didn't he? That was how he got as you was leaving. You well, yeah, it. my character was the character you gave me was a very sharp man. <laughs> yeah. He was a not a fundamentalist Christian, but he was he was a bit of a god botherer, wasn't he? Yeah. The Bible, and I decided to I quote quote the Bible at him to justify getting Tommy Gun <laughs> offended him through his Bible at him. He threw the Bible back at him. <laughs> He's right, he's right to do so. The other, um, so, so we've got some extreme reactions in that game. And the other game I played, uh, it was amusing because the same reaction seemed to come up every time. All the time. Uh, which is like, because uh, I, I asked the question, why are we? Why am I rolling two d tens rather than a d twenty to get responses? And the smarty pants. Oh, yeah, of course. The smarty pants. It's about an average. An average. Bell curve. Yeah, bell curve. Bell curve. Yeah, course, so yeah. it turns out that the bell curve will give you uncertain, hesitant. Oh, hang on. Where is it? No. Uh, pleasant, but will take no action to help, may answer questions. So it's like the, the average person. Which is, which is reasonable. I suppose the average person in Lake Frost City is indifferent to the world indifferent to the world <laughs> that's true of the world anyway isn't it if you start asking people questions about gangsters they're going to be uncertain and hesitant, so hesitant. Aren't they? but pleasant but pleasant about it you know <laughs> no I don't know no, no gangsters around here yeah. would, you like, would you like a cup of tea would you like a cup of bathtub gin oh no not bathtub gin <laughs> officer yeah <laughs> Yeah, presence is a, is, a, is a good rule. Yeah, it's, it's a good rule. And again, it, it, I suppose it's... It, I mean, saying that in the context of, of the time, I don't think it's any great shakes by modern standards. Oh, no, but we could say but that it, about everything we talk about on this, can't we? Yeah, and, and do. But, but I, 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 I disagree sometimes, though. Do you? Be- yeah, because I don't know how anything that's out now would give us fun or as reasonable results as applying that. Yeah, I suppose. You know, so I think we... There's a tendency, isn't it, to look back on these old games and say, well, you know, it's off the time. And, uh, yeah. But I think it does what it does in the context of the game. No, I suppose a, what I mean... It does. I suppose what I mean is people listening might go, what, so there's a reaction table in a game and you think that's a great rule. I mean, blimey, you know, that's hardly... Yeah. Any, but I suppose what I'm saying is 
there's a bit more to it than just a reaction tape. And the game makes more of NPC reactions than other games at the time, I think, yeah. would have done. Because they weren't as important in other games at the time. That, that's definitely... Because the NPCs were dead within about 30 minutes of meeting them most of the time. <laughs> they were goblins and they were all dead. It doesn't matter. I, I agree, I agree yeah. with you, but I would happily port this into... Yeah another game I was playing now yeah, of yeah. this kind of yeah. genre you know like it's kind of pulpy yeah. and sometimes it's I, I suppose it's sometimes as well like you say you, you, you wonder why you're rolling a reaction table sometimes rolling on a random reaction table injects something into the game that wasn't there before exactly you know, yeah. about spontaneity yeah. so yeah there yeah. is that and it's influenced by the characters by the characters presence yeah. presence so it, I suppose that's the thing with the presence it, it feels more like it, I suppose the difference is if you would roll at the time if you'd have rolled an 18 in D&D all you'd have gone it's great I can maybe be a paladin that's about it isn't it yeah. but if you rolled a high presence in gangbusters you'd be rightly pleased because you'd think oh that's going to be quite yeah. that is going to be more useful you're going to be the cock of the yeah block is that, yeah. did they use that I don't know they use that expression in Chicago I don't know <laughs> They would in Bolton, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, yeah they would. But yeah, yeah that, that, I think that's the difference with presence. The, the way they play the rule out of the game is more important than charisma in other, yeah. other games. Yeah, you may definitely. Have played definitely. So, yeah. And the third thing you've picked is the supplementary rules. Like they give yeah. it the back on how yeah. to be a gangster. How, how to be a gangster, and it explains things like stings, doesn't it? And, and stuff that you might get up to as a gangster, which, again, is, is really useful because, again, you kind of think, do, do a... When I, when I was a kid, did I really know what gangsters did? I think I did. No. You wear pinstripes, so you shoot people, but that's about it. What, what it does as well is it gives you uh, mechanics to actually have a career as a gangster. Yes. So yeah. it gives you some tables to give you an indication of um, bootleg sales. So if you were uh, yes. selling yeah. moonshine, yeah. this is what you could expect yeah. to earn yeah. depending on the level of your operation. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really And I suppose it gives it a bit of structure in terms of the point of organised crime is to make money. Yeah. Which, which, without those rules, you could lose sight of that a little bit. It sounds yeah. odd, but you, particularly when you were younger, you could lose sight of the fact that the point of being a gangster is to make money, isn't it? Yeah. And to have a lifestyle over and above what you would normally have if you worked down at the docks or in a factory. That's why gangsters... That's why they are like they are, isn't it? Because yeah. you can earn more money doing that than you could doing the things you could gain for be employed doing. Yeah. And I suppose that's what those rules reinforce and remind you of in the game. But the whole point of this is to earn money. Yeah. That's what organised criminals were doing. What I like about it a lot is that not only does it give you, if you're playing a gangster, the um, idea of how you could run your business... It also gives you ideas of scenarios because yeah, yeah. it gives you an idea of what kind of crimes are taking place. Yeah. You know, this uh, fixing numbers in casinos, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. As soon, soon as you hear that, you start thinking, ah, yeah. yeah what yeah, if uh, scenario set in a casino? And, yeah. yeah. What? What? Yeah. So, some um, down in the look patron is uh, recruits his a private eye to yeah. find out why he's lost, all his, lost all his money, or, yeah. or go into a, a casino owned by gangsters and try and rip them off by rigging the games yourself you know yeah. counting the cards and that kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. It, does, it does it It gives you ideas that without it you might struggle yes yeah you know 
particularly yeah. back in the day, struggle. Yeah, I think in the uh, in, in the game that we ran online, um, somebody had to uh, know the d- distinction between uh, bookkeeping and um, accountants. <laughs> Yeah, bookmaking, 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 and bookkeeping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a discussion around that, wasn't there? Yeah. I think when you th- one of the things that uh, somebody's uh, said to us, or Wayne Peters has mentioned, that he never gravitated towards um, gangbusters because he likes games have some fantastical element. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you could use these for. Um, you know, we did Dragon Heist, and in Dragon Heist we ran a pub, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And we were like petty criminals. That—that's a story of organised crime, but yeah. in a fantasy background. Could you have used the stuff that's in there? To... I think you could, because I think what was lacking in, in Dragon Heist was a bit of that. It didn't really have those elements, and it. it did have organised crime in it, but it didn't have much about how the organised crime worked and how you could do things as part of a criminal gang you were given like you're given like jobs to do right? go and do this go and intimidate that person if you choose those I mean, you don't have to choose the criminal factions in yeah. Dragon Ice you can choose other factions but if you choose the criminal ones you get given these jobs to do um, but it doesn't really talk about organised it doesn't really talk about what they're up to as in how they're making money it's yeah. not that in it really you know yeah so you could have you could have used rules like this I know what Wayne means I, I agree I, there is part of me always wants a bit of fantasy or science fiction in a role playing game yeah it seems odd that I don't, it's odd isn't it because when it comes to movies and books I'm not always reading and watching science fiction and fantasy stuff yeah but in a role playing game I always want a bit you know but I, I don't know why that should be it would be perfectly exciting yeah. to play a mobster game yeah on a long term basis and and I think we've said this before when we've talked about espionage games and uh, mm. this game. I gravitate more towards these style of games for some reason. I yeah. find these more fun yeah. for some reason. Mm. I like fantasy and science fiction, but if somebody said to me, oh, you can play a super spy, I'd be on that yeah. because that sounds great. I'll do yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, the th- one thing it doesn't do, the girls don't do, and I think this was what was missing from uh, Dragon Heist as well, was this sense of, you earn all this money, what do you do with it? That's an eternal problem in role-playing, isn't it? Yeah. With money, because you can... If you can spend money on training to make your character better, it feels worthwhile, doesn't it? Yeah. But money as in, for what? For the sake of it. You know, does your character enjoy themselves? Well, you know... Not, not sure like you say if you were a gangster in this and you made thousands and thousands of dollars on some kind of sting or protection racket or bootleg gin smuggling operation unless it gets your character better makes your character improve what, what are you doing with it yeah having a great time I mean a real person just have a great time wouldn't they yeah they did buy a flash car and in a big house and go oh okay, a big house I but, think, but what do you yeah do I've, with it and I think that's where more modern games or newer games deal with that better than these older ones because yeah. they talk about downtime, don't they? So that what your character does when they're not yeah. in the well, adventure. I think, think Barbara and Lemuria has some rules about downtime and spending all your money. So yeah. Yeah, in Barbara and Lemuria, 
you, you spend all your money. During the downtime, you blow all your money. Yeah. In the tavern, having a good time. Yeah. That's what you have to do as part of the game. And I think in uh, Conan, it's same. You have that corrosive. You do, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that kind of gives you uh, yeah. benefits to kind of really, you know, sort yeah. of stress relief. Yeah. And it's same in Blades in the Dark. You know, you're indulging your uh, vices yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, but as a as a, as a player, you want to get some mechanical. You either want the rules to insist that you do it, so you have to do it as part of the rules, yeah. or you want some mechanical benefit from your character using their money to have a good time. <laughs> Otherwise, it, you can't replicate luxury in a role-playing game, no, can you? No, because it just feels like, as we've said before about Traveller and other games, you know, yeah. Treasures are hopeless, because it's just like to play, play money, play money, isn't it? Just play money. Strange thing in a role-playing game, you can replicate extreme violence, you can replicate odd satisfaction in extreme violence, can't you? Yeah. So many games have we played where somebody has you, sliced a monster's head off and gone, felt yes, good, felt yes. good, felt great about it, haven't they? But, but you can't replicate that for getting, getting drunk in the tavern, can you? No. Or you've, you've spent the night getting drunk in the tavern and having a wonderful time. Players don't go, yes, yes, <laughs> fantastic. They go, yeah, all right. Yeah. Anyway, is yeah. there a monster to kill? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What does that say about role players? Yeah. Worrying. <laughs> so, right, let's have this out before we uh, finish then, because the dud Don't rule, say it like that. The dud rule, we have no, to talk about you, guns. You, you, we have to talk about guns. But we do, because they're not very... They, the rules are not... I don't think the gun rules are no good. I, right. I think there's a, a solution. There is a solution that the game doesn't do. And, and that is again a bit of an old school, new school thing. Okay. But the, one of the problems in the game is that guns do fixed damage, right? Yeah. I think a revolver does something like five damage. It does. Something yeah. like five yeah. damage. And on, most, a, and on average, you'll have about 15. You've hit got, so you've got 15 hit points. So, yeah. And there's no rules for criticals or anything like that. So, you, you can't, effectively, it's impossible to take someone down with a gunshot. Now, that in itself is a bit stupid because you think if you shoot someone even in the 1920s if you shot somebody there's a good chance you're going to at the very least incapacitate them aren't you? they're not going to just keep coming at you oh I've got 15 hit points right I've hit me two bullets I've still got five left don't come in you know that's, that's not quite realistic for but it's not realistic but, but it's yeah. not realistic but I but it takes away some of the drama and I'll give you an example when we played that game, David's character got machine gunned by Tommy yeah. Gunn, didn't he? Yeah. He's on the cusp of death. So we should so say... Right on the we, edge we, of death. We should say that so Tommy Gunn's... A lethal. A lethal. Yeah, they, rapid fire weapon yeah. is, is lethal. They, they, they hit bursts. Yeah, burst, bursts. Can, so, yeah, you've got, you got 20 hit points and you take... 20. You take it's, a 20, yeah. which a Tommy Gunn can do. You're going down. That's what happened to David's character, yeah. wasn't it? So, and he was there. It was a great scene. I thought it was a fantastic scene. The rain was pouring down. He crawled into a doorway. And we should say, he used his luck. He used his luck to pull through, just yeah. he was on one, one point of life, yeah. wasn't he? He crawled into a doorway. He got his revolver out. And the mobster with the machine gun was marching towards him, ready to finish him off. Yeah. But he couldn't kill the mobster. It was impossible. Yeah. He'd have to hit him four, four times in four rounds. Yeah. And that just seemed crap. Because what you wanted was that lucky shot that took this arrogant mobster down. 
yeah. before he machine gunned him to death. But it seemed kind of disproportionate. And that, I do think it's a big flaw. It's a flaw that would be solved by having mooks. Yeah, mook If you had life. mooks that only had five hit points and one yeah. shot could take a mook out, but a main villain or a player character was a bit tougher, I could accept that it's not realistic. So player characters can't be killed by one gunshot because they're players. They're going to yeah. get hit in the shoulder, the main character. But because all the characters, even the mooks, have a lot yeah. of hit points, it does seem a big problem. But yeah. you could fix it by just saying... If that, if that guy with a Tommy gun approaching David's character had been um, a, a mook yeah. with five hit points, he could have shot, shot him. And it that would have been exciting and dramatic. Yeah, but as it as it was, um, we had him run over by a Fiat van, uh, a, G- <laughs> a GM Fiat van. Yeah, I have to say, vehicles are more deadly than guns. They are. Yes. A, don't yeah. be in a car crash. My character nearly died in a car crash. Yeah, but he took about three bullets. He was fine. Bullets <laughs> were a problem. Car crash. I, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think it is a way of because uh, it, it isn't realistic. It is like no, no, pulp, I accept pulp that. But action and the, the look rule—the fact that you, you know, you can get shot at and actually yeah. avoid uh, injury. Yeah. Um, it happened to uh, David twice until you get blasted with his Tommy gun. Uh, but he, um, uh, it, it is there for that kind of mega death look serum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. If, if it was uh, proportionally better for play characters. It'd be more fun, wouldn't it? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. To mention the vehicle rules, because you're right. I mean, you decided to uh, knock over a pedestrian, didn't you? Uh, I didn't knock. A, I didn't knock over a pedestrian. He was a gangster <laughs> with a gun. I ran over a gangster with a gun. Not a pedestrian. I didn't go. Oh, here I am, God-fearing, Bible-bashing policeman, <laughs> and a wheel of a car drove over a pedestrian. He was a vicious mobster. And just, pulled a gun. An alleged mobster. He was a, he was a mobster. <laughs> He, yeah. he had a stripy suit on fedora and a <laughs> yeah. I mean I know everyone was wearing that in the 1920s that's not the point yeah. <laughs> so he went at him alpha leather and he took a bit of damage but then he crashed into he a died, wall yeah. 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 airbags in those days and, and the way that works is when you crash you roll on the table and uh, it determines how much damage everybody takes in, uh, in, in the car and as you say, it can be lethal. It's mm. kind of fatal in the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually think the vehicle uh, rules are quite good because they're quite simple, uh, but yeah, they yeah. do the job. It's a simple game. It's quite simple game. Yeah, difficult game. It works quite well. I think overall, mechanically, in rules, it does what it needs to do. Yeah, and I can see why it's such a. It feels such an enduring game, and it's quite fun to play. I think. Mm. Fun to play, but possibly pitched right in terms of it's gangsters, but it's comic book gangsters. It's not yeah. trying to replicate real world crime, which might could become problematic. I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we tried to do that because it's quite unpleasant, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't. You know, it's not that kind of world of crime. It's, no, it's more. It's the world of films, and that's what we're going to do next, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, we'll come back. Probably not in the pub then, will we? We'll be watching the film in Grogglebox. It probably yeah, not in the pub. I mean, that fella's gone away anyway. <laughs> Thank God. I felt his presence. Yeah. High presence score. Yeah. And our reaction was... Mine was react violently. <laughs> react violently. <laughs> I don't 
Just get out of the snow. I want snow. Chuck a bye, water. <laughs> See you later, bye. See ya. Appendix G. And welcome to Appendix G, a brand new segment to the Grognard Files, because gaming doesn't exist in a vacuum. We're influenced and inspired by films, TV, comics, books, and music. And over the next few episodes, we'll be collecting a handy collectible guide on how to use this inspiration in your gaming. And I'm delighted to have Vaughn Allen with me. Hello, Vaughn, member of the Grog, Grog Squad. Hello, Dirk. Good afternoon. It's good to have you. And uh, you're going to uh, int- introduce a TV series to, you, so, uh, to us, aren't you? So tell us a bit about that. So. What, what is your inspiration, your gaming inspiration? I think not so much a TV series, but possibly the TV series. So I'm, I'm here to talk about The Sweeney, uh, which for those of you who are maybe of an American persuasion and only saw a very bad film in, in 2012, um, is probably ranks along uh, among the top five or so classic TV series produced uh, by British television, really from 1963 to about 2000. Um, it was first broadcast in 75, lasted till 78. Pretty short time span, but in that time, they produced 50-odd episodes, 52 episodes, I think it was, which actually for British TV, again, that's a lot of episodes. That's almost on an American type of level. And two feature films in that as well. The first feature film is utter rubbish. The second film is brilliant. The Sweeney is based on the adventures of two detectives who, who are part of the Flying Squad and in Cockney Rhyming Slam, allegedly... Flying Squad translates to Sweeney Todd, which shortens to Sweeney. Um, I'm not convinced that that was actually the case until the TV producers came up with it, but we're, uh, we'll let it fly. It was a very, very different way of making TV at that time. Uh, we had had a very, Britain had had a very long running TV series called Dixon of Doc Green, which I think had started in the late 50s um, and was about a copper on the beat. And George Dixon was the the height of uh, respectability. And, and you know, he'd, he'd, he'd talk to kids going off the rails, dads, and, and just say, little Johnny, he'll, he'll, he needs to be brought back. And by certainly the mid-70s, and it's interesting, Dixon and Dr. Green actually went on until 76, um, it really didn't represent what was happening in, in culture, in popular culture, in policing at all. The Sweeney was made on film. Um, it was made in a really exciting semi-cinema verite type way. Um, car chases were a big part of it. Fist fights were a big part of it. So you could say it's the British equivalent of Starsky and Hutch, but in Starsky and Hutch, the fist fights were still very superhero-ish. There was never any blood. In the Sweeney, you saw people hit with baseball bats, hit with iron clubs. It was very violent, and particularly for the time. It, was, it caused something of a scandal at the time. It was very open to sex. Uh, it was very open to a lot of swearing. And in the films, they really went for the swearing. Um, so much so that it got what was then an X certificate. And it's still, if you watch it on Amazon Prime and you can watch the whole whole TV series on Amazon Prime, it still has a certificate on it uh, tucked away in the corner. But it represented something of a, a real change in what was happening uh, in TV's treatment of the police, TV's treatment of crime. And I think also tre- TV's treatment of popular culture because it was, it was both very influenced by popular culture and reading some of the accounts of, of the main people involved very much influenced both future public popular culture, but also the way the police viewed themselves. I seem to remember it being promoted in Lukin, which was uh, aimed at children, because there wasn't that sense of uh, 
watershed at that time, was it, uh, in, in the 70s? It, it, of these programmes were accessible to us as kids. They were, and I can certainly remember uh, watching it. I mean, it was on commercial television, and, and certainly for part of my family, you know, we were very much, a, well, mostly you just watch the BBC, you don't watch commercial television. But when it was first broadcast, I'm pretty sure it was broadcast in sort of the nine o'clock slot. And it, and it was broadcast as really that was... Um, you know where you put your 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 main drama and the stuff that really brought in the advertising income, and the Sweeney was huge. So for Thames Television and for Euston Films, that was the actual production company. It, it brought them in a huge amount of money. Apparently, again, reading on it, no residuals. It was non-unionized labour. No residuals for the actors. So that virtually everybody that was involved with it earned about seven k um, for for a series, and that was it your flat rate sort of thing. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it, it made a lot of money for the production company, I think. But it was available enough that um, certainly in the playground at 11 and 12, you would be talking about what you'd seen in the Sweeney. And it would be very much for a young teenage kid that the chance of there being bare breasts in an episode of the Sweeney was quite high. Um, so it would be something that you would probably try and make sure that you could be watching maybe without your parents. Yeah, certainly when they did a raid, they always managed to find a woman in a bath, didn't they? It seemed to be the, the rigor. It was you know. astonishing how they did that. I, I just don't know how they had that intelligence every single time. Or there was always a couple in bed. There's, I think it's in the first film. Um, uh, Regan, one of the two main characters, uh, Regan and Carter, um, runs through on a raid. And it's a sort of harem thing. And there is a guy in bed with about three women. and And it's like... This is only lasting for 10 seconds, but it's obviously because there hasn't been any bare flesh for about 20 minutes in the film and we need to do something. There's no other plot point to it whatsoever. So, so central to it is this uh, relationship between uh, Regan and Carter, isn't it? How, how would you describe that? Interesting in the term, in, in the way that um, Carter, George Carter is a sergeant, uh, Jack Regan is the inspector. One is, is superior to the other um, and one is much older than the other. Um, though, though Thor and, and uh, Dennis Waterman, who played, are only about five, six years apart, um, Thor did not look like 32 or 33 or whatever age he was when he played it. He looked mid-late 40s. And certainly by the end of the series and the last few episodes are actually quite sad. Um, and in the very last episode, which is a brilliant, brilliant watch, um, he's sort of stitched up for corruption and then walks out of the flying squad at the end of it. He has, he's had enough. But you actually see the toll of both his personal, John Thor was a, a known alcoholic, his personal alcoholic use, the partying they did during the sets and just getting exhausted from this, this ridiculous filming schedule. So they look like they're at least a decade apart. And that does come across in terms of the relationship very much, which I don't think you do have in Starsky and Hutch. You don't have it in The Professionals, which I think is probably the, the nearest that we had as a successor to the Sweeney and lasted from sort of 78 through to 82, 83. Um, I think that relationship... Um, is interesting when it comes to some of the attempts at some of the emotional stuff. So halfway through the second series, George um, Carter's uh, wife gets killed in a hit and run. And there is one of those classic, and I don't think you'd see this in a, on, a, on American TV, um, ways of dealing with it by English manhood, where Regan turns up with a couple of bottles of whiskey um, and basically says, I will chase you to the bottom of the label. And that's it. That's all that's said. And then you get a sort of, you know, a montage of about five minutes of them drinking and talking about life and those sort of things. I I can't imagine Starsky and Hutch doing it. Though though I could I could imagine it happening on something like the Rockford Files, which I think is probably the nearest American series to it. Um, something that was brutal um and also had the had the city around it as a character because in in the Sweeney London was very much a character and very very heavily involved in it, but that relationship is 
they they are in, in classic TV cop land. You know, they don't get on with their superior, albeit it's an interesting relationship and there are certain circumstances where they do get on with them. I think one of the things that factored into that is by the time it was broadcast and started being broadcast in 75, there was a pilot in 74, many of the London Flying Squad had been put in prison or were about to be put in prison for corruption. And, and it had been an on, ongoing story since 71, 72. So it was an interesting choice to focus on that group. Um, so this idea of being slightly outside the law, slightly, um, dis- well, massively disreputable, uh, was well in the public consciousness. So this this fact that they didn't follow the rules, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, was really, really core to them. And, I, and you know, that's something that is in, Ed, I can't think of a cop series, possibly with the exception of Juliet Bravo, um, where that isn't part of the storyline. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for Britain, that was probably the first to do that and certainly to do it on that scale where it became such an obvious trope. And just to give a sense of what what were the uh, crimes that they were fighting? Um, so, um, and, and are there any reoccurring uh, baddies to the series? There aren't a lot of reoccurring baddies, which I think is um, partially, I mean, it was made very much in, in a period where we were post-Craze, post-Richardson's. So that mix of organised crime and showbiz had faded away a little bit. Um, you'd started to get some of the gangs from South London who were, were a little bit more reticent and certainly weren't out drinking with the Daily Express crime reporters on a Friday night and, and spilling their guts to them. Um, the Flying Squad was, I think, picked because they were set up a semi-independent team within the Metropolitan Police uh, that could run rush about in fast cars in the 20s and 30s so very good for Call of Cthulhu I'd say even in the 20s and 30s but certainly by the 60s they were really focusing on armed robberies so they were co- focusing on what were called blags and you never hear them called anything other than blags as far as I'm aware um, that are of uh, uh, money delivery vehicles uh, of banks of transports wage runs I mean quite why in the 70s everything was being done with cash running up and down the motorways in little minivans I, d- I don't know um, so there was a wonderful run of extras where you can see almost the same extras are being re-employed to be the security guard that gets whacked over the head with a baseball bat from one, one episode to the other. So the Flying Squad historically uh, were tasked with doing this job, which actually meant that they may leave the Met Police boundaries, go up the M1 a bit, go out on the M4 to try and deal with some of these robberies. And the big Heathrow robberies, there were about three in the first um, few years of the 70s. They were the team that actually dealt with it and solved. And it meant that as a matter of course, they had firearms because the people that they were facing had firearms. And of course, that's really exciting um, compared to, you know, your Bobby on the beat who had a truncheon at the time and, and still does, albeit a metal truncheon rather than a wooden one these days. It is bank robberies. It is wage heists. It is a ve- It's a number of other things. Quite often there's recurring stuff about somebody coming out of prison, planning their next job. I think one of the recurring tropes that's really, really interesting is very, very swiftly in probably 50% of the episodes, Regan and Carton know exactly who it is that's done that job. Mm-hmm. They, they've, they've got enough information from their past or from their informants, and there's a lot of work with informants. They drink in the same pubs as the criminals. Again and again, they are in the same pubs as the criminals. The criminals send over a bottle of whiskey. Mr. Regan, how are you? I'd like to see you. You didn't get me that last time, did you? There is this relationship, which, reading all the memoirs, is absolutely accurate. Everybody was in the same pubs. Everybody was talking to each other. Um, and then, formulaically, 
the Sweeney employed some of the best scriptwriters in in British television. Um, so you have people like Troy Kennedy Martin, who went on to to work on Age of Dark- Darkness and and numerous others. Um, and so they used the formula to set up other really interesting stories. So Abduction, which ends the first um, series, is Regan's daughter by his estranged wife is kidnapped, and you get that classic panic about whether he can be whether she can be rescued, all of those sort of things. Um, there's an earlier episode where um, one of the drivers for the Sweeney is blackmailed because of his past into working for a, ro- a robbery gang. Um, the very last episode, the one I was talking about earlier, where, where Regan is is done for corruption, is a brilliant piece of script writing and a brilliant piece of theatre and, and bears resemblance to the to the later Inspector Morse episode where he's set up by a brilliant criminal to take take the fall for something, only without the music and whatever. But um, So very quickly you found people working within that framework where there was, maybe it was a robbery was part of it, but that wasn't really the story that you were being told. I have to mention this before we move on to gaming. Uh, Mark Wise made an appearance in there, didn't they, with Little Earn's wig? Yeah, more entertainingly, Little Earn is sitting in bed reading Carry On Emmanuel or something <laughs> along those lines. I went back after you mentioned it on the on the Discord the other day, and I went back and watched it. It's a terrible episode, but they tried to do quite comedic things, and it didn't work. I believe the story is that um, that uh, they had they had appeared on Thor and Waterman had appeared on the Christmas show for Morecambe Wise, and as they were looking for scripts for the for the, the fourth series, they called the favour back in, and it doesn't work. You know, you have a, a real love for the Sweeney. So, how did this uh, appear in your games? When I came out of, thanks to you guys, when I came out of Deep Freeze, uh, we started playing through a lot of Cthulhu uh, books. We did Berlin, we did Harlem. Really interested in the way that those books put together the atmosphere, the storylines, the underlying characters, and then started producing scenarios. So when it got to the beginning of this year, I wanted to start looking at something that we could do as a gaming group that I would be interested in is is playing with the Cthulhu stroke uh, Delta Green mechanics. And that would inspire me and interest me. So it sort of brought a lot of things together. And I thought, well, given the sort of the P division thing in Liminal, given the sort of peculiar crimes unit, what if you had a group like the Sweeney who were dealing with cultish type organisations in London in the early 70s? It would allow you to play in Get Carter and performance allow you to play in um, the real stuff that was happening there. You know, 1974, Harold Wilson takes over. There were real threats of a coup from the Monday Club and from um, Lord Lucan and various various others that were going on. Um, by 75, you have um, Throbbing Gristle moving. So by 76, you have Throbbing Gristle moving to London. You have the start of the Sex Pistols. You have Malcolm McLaren doing what he's doing. So you have this mass of pop culture. You have this mass of criminals running around. And you have this wonderful, wonderful city that is still looking like it was affected by the war, is still bombed in the war. And I think that's one of the, the things that comes through. The, in the Sweeney, London is a character in it. They film a lot in the Docklands. A lot of it's filmed in Hammersmith, um, Shepherd's Bush, which is where the real flying squad was based. And I th- so I thought all of this stuff that you could pile in in the 70s, this sense of everything breaking apart, there were constant strikes, there was a civil war in Northern Ireland, which came into, came into Britain, uh, in the scenario that we did, scenarios we did in the 1971, there were we had the Angry Brigade in it, who were who were heavily involved. The squatting scene in Notting Hill and Hackney, so this this huge pot of stuff that you could pull in, which just seemed perfect um, to be able to play without being necessarily historically totally accurate, because you know we have a 
character, one of our characters is Jim Regan, who is the the less successful brother of Jack. And, it, and it, it, so it's inspired a sort of 1970s campaign that is definitely ongoing. What does a, a normal session look like? So what does it start with? What inspires it? And how do you use the uh, formula and beats in the Sweeney to kind of direct that? Or, or do you? What, what, what format does it take? Yeah, I definitely do. So what, what, I, what I've done is um, I've mapped out some story arcs that take the entirety of the 70s and actually go up to uh, the accession the of your friend, Mrs. Thatcher. So within each year, I've, I've picked out what I want to be some of the skeleton of it. And what I then try and think of within that is, okay, how can we hook in A, some real events? Start started with uh, an edited version of Curse of the Bone, which the, the the classic White Dwarf scenario, which led us to ghouls, which led us to ghoul emperors trying to take over London and start summon up Neogtha. And I thought, well, how can you get uh, what's needed and and dig a hole? And then I was just looking through the event in 1971 and found in June 1971 the first time capsule at Blue Peter was buried. And it was like, wouldn't it be great to just end with a set piece of they've got to try and get this this set this you know um, time capsule back while it's on live television and replace what was going in it, which was magical stuff, with actually the original stuff. They didn't bother doing that; they just stuck a few um, hand grenades in and blew up Peter Purvis in classic Call of Cthulhu style. But um, <laughs> there's, a, there's an excellent episode set in a pub, which is a bit of a locked room mis- mystery. Pub opposite a bank, which is being robbed with an old flame. He ends up in bed with her. Um, they they seem looking at it to work their way through at least a bottle of whiskey which is quite astonishing considering then he goes on a a rooftop chase with a gun in his hand that sort of set piece it was like well how is this structured how does this work so I then pulled that out for the middle bit of what I wanted to do I know that I want to have this bit of a storyline which is there are some papers that need to be picked up you're on the trail of the gang that's trying to track them. So rather than just trailing the gang, why don't we have some information and intelligence that comes through that says they will be at this bank, you're overlooking it from the pub. So I've effectively just used the entire storyline as a, as a way of um, picking up what's going on. It was made for commercial television, the Sweeney. So there's a very clear structure of first act, opens with a teaser, going into the very famous theme tune, always upbeat always to get your heart racing then you go into the first act where think where you sort of start with the investigation gradually work your way up second act is all day newmont and climax third third act is usually the resolution and then a wind down to the minor key version of the titles at the end where you've got to have a sort of slightly sarcastic slightly cynical comment leading into it you can't have a fight just before the end First, I, I took the took the DG idea of you have a starting crew, but you need that crew to come from very different backgrounds. What we did then have is the opportunity to say, okay, that comes Jim Regan comes from the police. Um, well, we've got a hippie occultist. Um, well, maybe he had previously been nicked by Jim, so there's a relationship there. So how do we get keep that relationship going? Very quickly, we found within the first sort of episode, for want of a better term, is that some of the NPCs were actually being, as you'll know from the thousands of games you run, being relied on more than you possibly have written them to be relied on. And they become, so, you know, I, I had I had a witch who was a, a, um, a very much a small character in the first one who are just, because I have a bad sense of humour, called Marianne Faithless. And she's become quite a major character who is one of their sort of chief advisors that keeps coming back. Um, so the, the relationship between them is very much on we are driven to be together because 
literally we can have no help. Um, everything that is written in it, much as with the Sweeney, is any official police help is corrupt and you don't know who you can trust. You can't actually go out and threaten people. The current episode they're working on is, is based in Soho. It's based on it at the height of, um, as one of the players put it, the muckiest part. He needed a, a bath <laughs> after one of the episodes. The muckiest point, point in Soho, um, where everything is run by um, the Maltese and post-Maltese gangs. Uh, they they have the entire obscene publication squad in their pocket. Um, you, c- you can't go in and threaten and use a police badge because they already make their payments to the police to a different department. So who, are you, who is it you're going to trust? Uh, and I think that 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 means that the team came together very, very quickly. I think the other thing that brought the team together was, though two of the players are late 20s, they were aware of the, the Sweeney stuff and are aware of some of the 70s stuff. The other two are sort of um, in, their, in their late 40s, early 50s. So had lived through it, or in fact, were at cultural academics specialising in it. But you had enough of that knowledge that it was it became quite interesting to explore that world and explore how that stuff would come on, but also to be a bit playful about it and mm. to pick up that stuff. So some of the funnest bits are, you know, Curse of the Bone. Um, they 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 ended up going down the tunnels and were working all night. So we use the DG thing of um, having will points and exhaustion, uh, which I like. So I was about to hit them all with exhaustion. And one of the 20, 20 somethings went, well, we need some coffee. I'll go and find a cafetiere upstairs in the kitchen. And it's like all the 50-year-olds looked at each other and went, no, you won't. Um, you know, mellow birds, you might be able to get up, upstairs, but that's probably all you're going to, you know. And those sort of, those some conversations that come, which provide a light-hearted bit in what is very much a, a really quite dark, the world is collapsing. I mean, the 70s was like that. Um, but when you start digging into the corruption and various other things that were going on as well, it, it's a pretty, pretty dark place. For people who don't know the Sweeney or don't know this era, where would you point them towards? Where should they start? Start at the beginning of the first series and or the second movie. Uh, the second movie is really good. It is quite over the top and they're very well into their roles. I think the fourth series, the third and fourth series have too much comedy, at least for me. The first series hits the ground running. Virtually every British character actor of the 70s and 80s is in it somewhere. The first three or four episodes, um, you, you're going to know whether you like it or not try and um, swing with the absolutely outrageous sexism. I have a feeling that that was exactly how the Flying Squad acted, um, and I'm pretty sure that that was probably how exactly how the team acted. Interestingly, as you get on towards the end of the first series and the second series, though the sexism continues, there are some very strong women that come into it as well and certainly give as good as they got. What you're, what you're saying is avoid Ray Winston. Is that the correct? Is that correct? I think that Roy, I, Ray Winston is in a lot of brilliant things. Indeed, I think as a youngster, he was in an, an episode of The Sweeney. I'm, I, I, I think he was. Um, but that film is, I mean, the film has Jeremy Clarkson in it for a start. Um, <laughs> so it's one of those, you know, that you sort of go, please, don't. this is just the wrong thing to do. But it is, it's better than the um, Sylvester Stallone version of Get, of Get Carter. Thanks, fine. Struggle box. Welcome to the Zoom of Role Playing Rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hi, Blythe. Hello. Hello, Dirk. Our recording once again interrupted by a storm. Storm Eunice, a bigger one than the yeah. other two that disrupted our Even recording. bigger, even bigger. It's almost like, I don't know, the, the god Thor, the god of thunder is against our podcast in some yeah. way. Yeah, Orlanth is blowing a gust up our gusset every time we come to <laughs> sit together. But yeah. It's not global warming, it's us. We we come together to talk about The Untouchables, Brian De Palma's film from 
87. It was a big deal back in 1987. It was a big blockbuster film Mm -hmm. at the time. I think I watched it at the cinema with my my wife-to-be, I think. Yeah, went to the cinema a lot then. I have a bit of a history with it in that I was very sniffy about the film when it was released, and there's a reason for that. Mm. I was at college, and um, the film club uh, that I was, I got, managed to get on the committee because, you know, if you're not a messianic megalomaniac, you know, you've got to get into the source of power straight away, haven't you? That's the, that's the idea. And um, yeah. my plan on having, you know, a, a series of arty films was not back. And um, the committee insisted on having these Hollywood blockbusters, a season of these Hollywood blockbusters, of which um, The Untouchables was one of them, (laughs) Um, because they wanted to appeal to a generic crowd. And uh, in the previous season, they put on I Know Corrida, In the Realm of the Senses. And it it was very popular. They had to um, show it three times. Three times. Really? Why is that? (laughs) Why is that? How strange it should be so popular. <laughs> if people don't know it, it's um, a story <laughs> of uh, an passionate affair <laughs> which ends uh, somebody dying in orgasm and um, the uh, woman wears the fella's todger around her neck um, for a few days uh, at the end of it. You know, so you never, it, you never thought you'd hear that on a RPG podcast. <laughs> there you go. That must be a first. And anyway, it caused, it caused a real uh, stink um, and the um, board of the uh, college kind of came down heavily on it. And so they were taking no risks with this season. So you were, for- you were essentially, you were forced into, that Stalin is Russia, you were forced into safe Hollywood films where you Exactly. That. Um, like, the establishment, an educational establishment doing that. Yeah. There you go. There That's you surprising. Go. They're into like three thoughts and all that kind of thing. Apparently not. They're into no. Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner and that uh, rubbish film Nadine. I don't know if you remember it with Kim Basinger uh, vehicle where she oh, was drunk. Oh, it was terrible. I don't, I don't remember that one. No, I wanted uh, a John Luke Goddard uh, season <laughs> and it all planned out. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it was not bad. What you got, Kevin? You got Kevin Costner, Kim Basinger, Kim Basinger, Passenger, or whatever. So I was always I was always uh, sniffy about it and um, didn't like it because you know what it, I mean we'll go into this a bit more but it it is an over the top Hollywood yeah, production. I think, I think it's quite interesting though that you say you're quite sniffy about it because I think I was too until until I rewatched it for this I'd got it in my head that it was rubbish. I got it in my head. This thing Kevin Costner isn't it? You see Kevin Costner as the he got a bit of a bad reputation, hasn't he, for for all the films he was in, the rubbish, Robin, the Robin Hood film, you know, and uh, Waterworld and all that kind of thing. Everyone sort of got it. I, I don't know, but maybe not everyone, but I agree with you. I, I got it in my head that, well, if you're going to watch a gangster film, don't watch The Untouchables, because The Untouchables is not really a gangster film. It's just kind of, yeah, cops and robbers. and The studio went big with it, so they've got a lot of um, big-name stars, you know, De Palma, and they've got, a great cast and uh, got David Mamet and uh, the screenplay is fantastically quotable, isn't it? There's some great lines in it. Mm. And um, of course, uh, De Niro's in it and De Niro, his performance kind of exemplifies how 
bombastic and over the top and it just reminds you that it's not a naturalistic film whatsoever is it it's just ridiculously over the top his performance it doesn't really in some ways it's unfair to compare it to things like the godfather or goodfellas isn't it because it's not although it's about gangsters it's not really in that bracket is it it in in the same way that i was sniffy about it because i think oh it's just cops and robbers well, it is cops and robbers, but actually, when you watch it again, you think, "Do you know what? It's no bad thing, is it?" Yeah. It it does it. What it does, what it sets out to do, it does very, very well. I think. I think the the difficulty is when you watch it. If you're expecting The Godfather or Goodfellas or something like that or Scarface, if you're expecting that kind of film, that's not what you're going to get. But what it does, it does very, very well. I think. Very watchable, actually. It's actually quite yeah. entertaining, really. And, and you're right, watching it now, I've got a different appreciation of it. And part of that is because if you want to play gangbusters, watch this film because yeah. it'll give you everything you need uh, to play yeah. gangbusters. I played again last night as part of um, the weekend with the good friends, with a new group of people. And I would have to say that my experience enhanced by having watched the untouchables a couple of nights before because it 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 kind of turns up all the cliches and that's what gaming does isn't it it relies on those stereotypes and that kind of collective knowledge that we have about these types of um, films and these types of uh, environments and i think as well as we discussed in the previous podcast that the difficulty with a lot of gangster films in terms of crossing them over to RPGs is that they're not really transferable into an RPG format. Or if they are, it's very difficult because you've got all that thing that you discussed about people climbing to the top um, and the paranoia of being whacked by someone who wants to take your position. And those things are difficult to translate into a role-playing game. But The Untouchables is the opposite. When you watch it, you think... This, this is like a role-playing game. This this is exactly the kind of thing a role-playing game would be. It gathers together some player characters and they set off to beat the bad guys. And that's, yeah, that's role-playing. Simple, straightforward, cops and robbers role-playing, yeah. And when I was um, watching it, I came up with this idea that I'm going to rename Brian De Palma as Brian DM. Palmer because mm. the way that he constructs his <laughs> constructs his scenes it, mm. very much like a games master does it, we're going to go through some of these set pieces that he puts together but he sets up the stakes he makes it very clear what is happening in a scene and what outcome the characters are trying to get out of it and then puts obstacles in the way to prevent them doing it and that's where the drama comes from and that's precisely our scenario would work isn't it these kind of scenes in a scenario as well as an it's as an unambiguous quality to it and that these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and there is no there is no point in that film there is no point in that film although there are some there are some bent cops that that's an issue which we will talk about the the idea of, of of bent cops and dodgy dodgy policemen is is part of it but the central characters there's no point in the film where you think any of those central characters are uh, going to betray any of the other characters. They are they are good guys, and it's as simple as that. There's no point at which you think, yeah. oh, 
because I'm not sure, not sure about him, you know, but that's not never on the table, is it? That they're essentially the four central characters are the untouchables. They are good guys, simple as that. And even when um, there's like a kind of suggestion when they go to recruit Andy Garcia and he's from the yeah. neighborhood, it's quickly eliminated, yeah. isn't it? And yeah, put out, yeah. yeah. That's what's that's what's interesting about a scene. You got the Andy Garcia character, who's Italian American, and of course you think, oh well, you know, he's he's a suspect, isn't he? You know, but he, but he's not. He's not, is he? Once <laughs> once he's recruited into the ranks of Kevin Costner's men, there is no there's no point where you think, I'm not sure about the Andy Garcia character. That's no, you you put it's he's a good guy. That's it. Simple, play a character. <laughs> there's no player versus player in this game. <laughs> No, and and even uh, De Niro uh, watching it now, uh, you know, thirty odd years later, and um, mm. realize that it's actually probably more subtle than I gave it credit for, in that it references um, uh, Mooney's um, performance in Scarface from the twenties. Uh, um, it's got it, it. It has got kind of references to the mannerisms in in doing that because mm. I, I think at this point uh, De Niro was on the turn wasn't he after great performances in the 70s and early 80s he was kind of um, chasing paychecks wasn't he at this point um, yeah and, uh, but yeah I think there is more subtleties I, well, yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I, yeah it, it is better than you than you remember as a performance but yeah you're right he, he's, I suppose he's does he ham it? Can you say Robert De Niro hams it up a bit? Is that is that a thing you can say about Robert De Niro? Yeah, I, but think I think he, if, he does that. If he does that. Way, if, if he if he hams a part, if he ever hams a part up in a film, this is the part he hams up a bit. I think. Yeah. No, I think. He, but he kind of almost like he's enjoying. Maybe he's enjoying himself. Yeah. He does a That's lot of that thing, kind of. Uh, maybe he's had all these intent. He's had all these intent parts in the Deer Hunter and all that. But maybe in the Untouchables, he's kind of enjoying himself. Almost being a panto villain, you know, Al Capone. There's a sense there, I think. Of, and I'm not saying that, that that's a bad thing, but there is a sense that maybe De Niro's going, oh, yeah, what do I have to be, Al Capone? Oh, great, I'll just be Al Capone. He does a lot <laughs> of that easy. kind of uh, gurning, uh, wobbling his head from, that gurney frown he does, yeah. like, wobbling his head from side to side, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Bob Hoskins was lined up for that part. I have to tell this because uh, Hoskins used to tell this story every time he was on uh, the TV in the 80s, but he was lined up for that part and he found out in the press that he hadn't got it and just thought, right, okay, whatever, um, I'll stand aside for De Niro. If you're going to stand aside for anyone, I'll stand aside for him. And then weeks later, he got a check in the post for $20,000 and he rung up Brian De Palma and said, "What? What's this for?" He said, "Oh well, you know, thanks for being on standby for me." And he said, "That's great. Have you got any other films you don't want me to be in?" <laughs> so let's have, let's have a look at the uh, let's have a look at the film. Rather than going through it as a synopsis, what I thought I'd do is this is a film of set pieces. I thought I'd pick out some set moments so that we can talk about them and talk about Brian DM. Palmer sets them up <laughs> for gaming. So the initial stage is uh, bringing the gang together, isn't it? So it's almost yeah. like the Magnificent Seven uh, drawing together um, the group of player characters. And they are distinctly 
play characters, aren't they? Yeah, definitely, because you've got the accountant, haven't you? Oh, he's not an accountant. He's an FBI agent, but he's he's in he's right from the word go. And this is it's obviously quite funny, isn't it? That from the word go, he is pointing out his tax affairs aren't in order. But he's he's a player character, isn't he? You know, high intelligence, low strength, low constitution. You know, he's he's the kind of brains of the operation, isn't he? And every every yeah. accountant that you meet will tell you. Old Capone was brought down by an accountant eventually. So, you know, details do matter. Details do matter. And maybe when they do that, you should point out what happens to this accountant yeah. in a lift in the film, actually, <laughs> wouldn't it? I think this early bit of the um, film does set up the context, the brutal context in which they're mm. trying to survive. It's very much late front city, this. You've got, you've got Connery's character, haven't you, the recruit, who's disenchanted cop isn't disenchanted beat cop giving up on it all that really they're they're all bent and he's a straight cop but what's the point kind of reluctant old cop isn't he he also acts as a mentor for elliot nesson kind of saying if you're going to go for this you got to go for it because the risks yeah. and the stakes are high exactly elliot ness is the lawful good paladin isn't he and uh, yeah. <laughs> sean connery is the chaotic good <laughs> fighter or ranger isn't it so don't stick to the rules stop sticking to the rules basically the ends justify the means of course we've mentioned um andy garcia who's the rookie uh sharpshooter and uh, i think the other element that uh, they set up really well that makes it like a role-playing game is that because they can't trust anybody they're operating outside the usual law yes. enforcement unit because they try to do an initial raid and um they get shopped because they are all corrupt so they decide to go it alone they're actually outside yeah. of the system um operating um it, as a group and this this is why it's ideal for role playing and uh for gangster role playing yeah that's that's true that yeah they do they operate as a separate unit don't they which focuses in on those four characters you know, rather than the police force, it's not. It's not really about the police force, is it? It's about, and it's not. I suppose, in that sense, it's not police procedural, is it? it? Because it's not about the police force. It's about four people who are sort of mavericks, really, who've gone, who, who've separate themselves out from that in order to do what they want to do. But by doing that, it does. You do focus on those four characters. The rest of the police force kind of sink into the background a little bit, don't they? And although there are, you say, you say there are dodgy cops, but they're not, they're not central to it. And so uh, it sets it up then for the adventures that they're going to go on. And this is audacious, I think, for one of them. It goes out of the city and puts them mm. on the uh, US-Canadian border. It is quite audacious when you think that this is a, an urban uh, noir fantasy and uh, De Palma says well actually let's take him out of that and uh, yeah. do a high chaparral scene uh, yeah so it turns it into a western for about about 25 minutes it turns into a western doesn't it really <laughs> they're on horseback and yeah which which again underscores that unambiguous idea of a, a Ford western where the good guys are good and the bad yeah. guys are bad. Yeah. You've even got the cavalry, haven't you, um, charging in it? Yeah, the, so. the mounties, yeah. It's kind of like a set piece you would have in a role-playing game, isn't it? You can imagine that 
whole scene being done with Savage Worlds, can't you? Capone's men are meeting on the border to collect uh, liquor uh, and inspect it before uh, picking it up. Um, however, uh, Elliot Ness have prepared an ambush on horseback with yeah. Tommy guns. I mean, come on. What's not to like? <laughs> not to like about that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great there's a great shootout in the um between the the good guys and the and the mob. You see the mobsters are these grotesque slightly grotesque looking characters, aren't they? In in gaudy clothes. Isn't one of them wearing like a fur coat or something? There's something about the way they dress, they're very stylized, aren't they? I mean you wouldn't in all, in all honesty, you don't really need a police force in this film because all you'd have to do is walk down the street and find someone who looks evil, has an evil-looking face, and he's wearing a gaudy suit and hat and go, they're a gangster. They're wearing spats or a white suit or something or a purple suit or like the guy. I think there is a guy wearing a fur coat, isn't there, on the bridge? Yeah. And he, a combination of kind of a sinister, slightly camp, and grotesque all at the same time, don't they? Yeah. They don't look but, like normal people. Armani suits as well. Armani did the uh, costume for it. I think that was mm. one of the reasons why I was a bit sniffy about it, because it felt like <laughs> the, ult- the ultimate product placement uh, initially. But yeah. It, as this scene plays out, it is a classic role-playing ambush. And it um, also highlights that, that thing of the... Um, the difference in approach because there's a great the great scene where Connery, there's the dead guy, the guy's been shot, the gangster has been shot, and the Connery pulls him from the ground, doesn't he? And through the window shoots him in the head, as if pretending that he's still alive, in order to terrify the gangster that they've caught into talking. Which yes. of course the gangster then thinks, Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> he's got he's just shot, shot someone in the head, and he's not. It's a that's a really, really good scene that demonstrates that the Connery's approach to it. You know, he's not he's not murdering someone who's already dead, but he pretends that he's murdering somebody in order to frighten the other the other guy into talking. You know, yeah. again, just highlights that uh, highlights the alignment of the characters. Yeah. <laughs> and also, there's um, some typical uh, player character techniques as well. Rolling a grenade over the top of um, the roof. Um, to draw somebody out, and so it, it explodes. Yeah. Unlike a play character, you can't, they kind of pull it off, don't they? What What I'd also Just say... Character, you'd fail the role. <laughs> blow yourself <laughs> up. Blow yourself up. That's a bit like how it Getting turned myself. out last night. I'm not having that. <laughs> That's how it turned out <laughs> last night when I was playing Gangbusters, but there you go. <laughs> and talking of Gangbusters, I, I want you to know, uh, Judge Blythe, that Andy Garcia takes a shot to the shoulder and he's able to continue uh, fighting. So, therefore, Gangbusters is a perfect reflection of this uh, genre. <laughs> is that what you're saying, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you could use a different game and just roll, just roll low, lucky roll low. You're all right. <laughs> so after this um, scene... Could, Pawn starts to strike back, and as we've mentioned, he sends out his uh, his assassin Nitty, who will come to focus later. But it starts putting pressure on the Untouchables. We have this great scene, this centerpiece scene. Malone himself is targeted. The way it's yeah. set up, this is a point of view shot through the window. You are the assassin. That's a great scene. And before that, as well, another great scene you've got is 
uh, Capone with the baseball bat. Yeah. So I remember when I watched that, that was quite a shocking scene that got talked about a lot where he's wandering around the dinner table and one of the gangsters who's kind of failed him a little bit. Um, I think he's he's one of the raids. He's in charge of one of the distilleries, one of the breweries, isn't he? One of the raids. And he, he fails Capone and he hits him with a baseball bat, doesn't he? And I remember that being quite that kind of made everyone in the cinema sort of sit up and go, oh, blimey, you know, that's, yeah. look at that. But, that is, um, but yeah, the other, the other great bit is, yeah, the bit we're talking about now. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's, um, you know, this is why I say that it's perfect for, uh, for RPGs because it is over the top. It's completely operatic, isn't mm. it? In its approach, it's not naturalistic whatsoever. Um, and as you say, that moment with the, um, baseball bat and the overhead dolly shots that he keeps doing as well so it's classic department you know really over the top loads of blood and gore and and mm. this scene with uh, malone is um it, it is a, a department moment it kind of goes on for longer than you think doesn't it this kind of prowling and yeah. as an audience you don't want to see malone get killed do you because he's the no. he's a good one he's the one we relate to because he's a good guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and Sean Connery just brings something to the film, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, as soon as he yeah. appears on the screen, he's the one that you kind of think, it lifts it, elevates it. Yeah, you don't want Sean Connery to be killed, but but at the same time, I, mean, I suppose it's difficult when you watch it a few times. But I think the first time you watch it, you almost know that he is going to be killed. I think there is a sense of foreboding that he's he is doomed i think you know which makes it all this more painful to watch really isn't it <laughs> doesn't it? i think some somehow it's more painful because you do know he's they've got it in for him you know and of course they kind of trick you don't they with the killing that the guy who you think's been sent to kill him yeah isn't yeah. He's brought a knife to a gunfight. He brought a knife to a gunfight. And so he's chased out yeah. by uh, Malone. But it was always yeah. an ambush and exactly. uh, waiting yeah. in his white suit, nitty with his uh, uh, Tommy yeah. gun. And yeah. probably as many squibs as Sonny Coriolani gets uh, shot, he, he uh, gets hit, doesn't he, by this uh, Tommy gun. <laughs> and, and, and unlike gangbusters, where Tommy guns are, completely devastating he's still alive when kevin turns up isn't he barely admittedly barely look, but look roll puts him a hit look, point look rolls. he gets a look roll yeah. and he gets a, a hit point back so he can crawl along yeah. the floor painfully yeah. this fuels um ness to move things up a gear and you know, they, they, again, you know, I keep making this point, but it's like big, bold things that stir uh, the characters mm. in this. And it's because it, it, no subtlety in it whatsoever, is it? You know, the, it, the no, it kind of just moves. It, it moves from one very dramatic scene to another, doesn't it? That was kind of energy of its own, doesn't it? Where it, it's just the next scene is going to be interesting. The next scene is going to be interesting. It's going to move you through. You know, he's a great DM for MDM De Palma. He's just got action-packed scenes, doesn't he? No, no throwaway waffle. And so this uh, scene, Chicago train station, they need to intercept the bookkeeper who has all the evidence, right. the yeah. ledgers, as he's been sent to a place of safety by Capone because he knows that 
uh, the DA won't take the uh, case to court unless they've got this uh, evidence. And so they are determined that the train station it's set up that Ness is doing perception checks at the top of the stairs <laughs> Andy Garcia yeah. is lingering around near the platform we have this frankly quite painful scene where a woman is struggling with her bags and a pram yeah it's a funny scene, isn't it? Because it, it, it's almost out of kilter with the rest of the film, really, isn't it, that scene? There's an oddness to it, really, where I think he's trying to generate a sense of anxiety or paranoia, isn't it, with the yeah. pram, and you're thinking, what's that got to do with it? But yeah, And you're also thinking, yeah. for God's sake, come on, get off this bloody stairs. Get on with it, get on with it, shoot somebody. <laughs> oh, oh. It's, you know, if if you were that woman, you'd be thinking, "Oh, come on, you you're dying to help her out," and that is the sense that Elliot Ness has, isn't it? I've got to, yeah. I can't cope with this woman going up one step at a <laughs> time. I this woman struggling. I have to go and help her, but if I go and help her, yeah, someone's going to shoot me and her, maybe. So we have this child who looks like a cherub, you know, looking at Elliot Ness as he's helping him up the step, and of course, this is a homage to. Battleship Potemkin and the Odessa Step. The book, bookkeeper appears and all hell breaks loose in terms of uh, fighting. And this this is a perfect, perfect RPG setup, this, I think. But I think it's like GURPS. It's like one second at a time. <laughs> the pram and the first second goes on to the next step. Bounce. Mm. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Wait. Yeah, bounce. <laughs> Wait another second, bounce another step, shoot again. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So, like you said, tedious. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but very. Uh, some somehow this it it should work, but it sort of doesn't, does it? It's a famous scene, but it takes a bit too long. To do it, it's almost uh, yeah. It's a bit of a peculiar. Yeah, it's a bit of a peculiar scene. Like I said, it does sit, sit feels slightly out of kilter with the rest of the film to some extent, as if he's trying to generate a sense of anxiety. But I'm not sure it entirely works. I mean, this is a homage to the TV series, ABC TV series that um, De Palma would have enjoyed in his youth and like a lot of his contemporaries uh, George Lucas and Coppola they were always hankering over the 50s and in the 80s the films were always like homages to films the films about films and um, I, I do think that some of the great gangster films that people like with all these cliches the cliches that we we as game players we rely on as I say you know playing the gangster gangbusters game last night I, I didn't really need to do it. The game didn't need to do a lot of work. I didn't need to do a lot of work because everybody knew what the cliches and tropes were because, like De Palma, yeah, yeah. everybody's soaked in it, aren't they? You get put a femme fatale in, on, in a scene. Everybody knows how to behave. Everybody knows what to <laughs> expect. And, you know, this, as we've said, this is a very quotable film. The quotes come out, don't they, around the table. Because of the cliches, because of the tropes, really, um, the rules that you need for gangbusters is kind of secondary to all that. All you need, really, is to make sure everybody watches this film the night before. <laughs> Just watch The Untouchables the night before, and you're ready to go. 
Of course, uh, to end the scene, we have to rely on Andy Garcia's sharpshooting, and that's never in Crack any shot, doubt. Yeah. Never yeah. in any yeah. doubt he's going to hit. Although some of the guys hanging around, like I said earlier, they just shoot them right from the word go because they, they look like gangsters, don't they? The final scene we should look at is the courtroom scene where the ultimate... Mm-hmm. Um, and Bill Draco's face is fantastic for a gangster. He, he, he has almost been like a, an NPC that's been in every scene so far. Because as <laughs> Capone's assassin, he's always there, isn't he? Mm. Towards the middle of the film, when he does the hit on Malone, he starts wearing a white suit just so that you can pick him out. Yeah, He's, he's yeah, yeah. the really bad guy. Ultimately, yeah. he's the one who's uh, done all the damage. Yeah. yeah, he's done all the killing. But the courtroom scene's great, isn't it? When Capone gets uh, convicted, clean cut storytelling, really, isn't it? There's no ambiguity to it at all, and it's done really well because you don't have to have uh, a long courtroom scene. All that he does is change the jury, so uh, he's no lo- yeah. longer got the jury that he's nobbled and uh, coerced into. Uh, in insisting the, the judge decides to change the jury and as you say it goes out of the courtroom and we have the rooftop scene where um he's confronted with netted the uh, assassin but of course the um, ambiguous thing is that in the end elliot ness lawful good policeman paladin ends up throwing him off the roof but then you want him to do that you do want him to do you do as an audience. I think you want him to throw him off the roof. I think when he kind of arrests him, you're thinking like, oh, well, oh, no, that won't do. Slightly disappointed <laughs> when uh, uh, he lifts him back onto the roof because it, it does. Yeah, that's you what I mean. That. You, you're kind of expecting that he's going to fall. And then, of course, he lifts him back and arrests him. You think, oh, all right, slightly disappointed now. But, of course, he doesn't disappoint. Kevin doesn't disappoint. And he does end up throwing him off the roof. I've really enjoyed uh, watching it again. And as I say, I think it has uh, fueled my interest in uh, gangbusters. Uh, yeah. Really recommend uh, revisiting it if it's a while since you've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It did surprise me how much I enjoyed it, I think. But maybe I enjoyed it with a with an RPG eye, you know, maybe, maybe that's why. But I think the way to approach it is not is not to really put it in the bracket with other gangster films. Don't don't compare it to those famous gangster films like The Godfather and what have you don't don't compare it to them because it's not it's not it's got gangsters in it and it is about gangsters but it's not yeah. those kind of films is it it's a different type of film completely and it's precisely the space in which you can comfortably play a role playing game because of that kind of larger than life it's perfect surprising, gangster- surprising. It, it's surprising as well I think Kerry there's not been more films like that made uh, most gangster films are in the other category but there, there has been a couple the, uh, in the early 90s there was a Christian Slater uh, vehicle with um, uh, called Mobster with who else did it have in um, Patrick Dempsey similar to uh, Miller's Crossing similar to Tarantino's films and all those films that exploded in the 90s it films mm. about films it's not really about authentic crime it's about no it's um, not trying to replicate the the actual real world of gangsters it's trying to replicate the cinematic world of gangsters yeah the the, well, the tv world of gangsters thanks blithy uh, i'll just get me caught and uh, we'll come back for a, a few minutes all right 
Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Oh, get me caught! Putting our coats on, heading towards the door, but we're still continuing to talk to each other. It's a star, mate, though, and we feel freezing when we get out, so... so <laughs> these are, a benefit. It's that point in the podcast where we just have uh, some closing remarks and uh, things that have caught our attention. Well, I've I've started with my friend, my friend and his son, whose son's 15, and got into D&D, and now he's got into Cthulhu. And he's got the Wicked's Berlin, the Wicked City. So we had a, our first adventure in the Wicked City, well, uh, which was a lot of fun. Actually. So it's, it's like the um, Weimar it, Republic. It it looks like yeah. This. Well, he didn't he didn't run it. He didn't run it. Um, he didn't run one of the. I'm assuming there are three or four scenarios in there, but he didn't run one of the scenarios. He just ran. He used the setting that's in the book to to develop his own scenario. Use some of the ideas in it to develop his own scenario. But that was quite good fun. It proved again the principle that once you introduce Nazis into a role-playing game, kill and hit Nazis many times, it doesn't matter. No one cares. Nobody cares. The librarian was beaten to death with a cricket bat. But he was in the Gestapo, so it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, isn't it? I don't, I don't think you should never beat a librarian to death with a cricket bat. Oh, anybody, but not a librarian. If they're in the Gestapo, I think it's all right, isn't it? It's all right. You've no got license to it. Nobody's judging. License to it, you want. It's the, it's, kind of the, it's the Indiana Jones principle, isn't it? That, you know, you kill as many Nazis as you want. No one cares. But it's quite good fun. And it was, it's, it has been an interesting journey to see him go from 5th edition D&D to making that switch to Cthulhu. And really, all he's interested in now is running Cthulhu stuff. He's not that interested in D&D anymore he's interested in Cthulhu and finds Cthulhu kind of fascinating you know it is, it is interesting to see that you know that development in in someone so young getting into role playing and then making that switch and thinking oh that's interesting why wonder why he finds that so fascinating but it, then of is, course we did didn't we it, and is it is it just taking things having a bit more flexibility taking things out of the dungeon and into something mm. that is a bit more yeah. You can explore yeah. stories a bit more, yeah. I think it is. I think it's like we've said about Cthulhu previously, that it's kind of so flexible, isn't it? You can dial it up, you can dial the horror up, you can dial the horror down, you know, you can set it in different historical settings, that kind of thing. And I think all that does appeal to him. But it appealed to us, didn't it, in the in the 80s? That's what appealed to us about Cthulhu. But it's interesting to, to witness it, you know, again, repeating itself and thinking, oh, right, so... You're become quite bored of magic users and paladins and orcs, and you're much more interested in Cthulhu and mm. what opportunities that presents for role playing. You know, and I suppose it demonstrates why why Cthulhu is such a popular and long has such longevity, hasn't it, in role playing? Been so popular that yeah. you can see in him that it demonstrates why it's so popular. You? said at the start of the year that we would only purchase a new game or a new uh, something new 
once a quarter. Well, uh, four mm. weeks in to the new year, I've got a job lot load of stuff for John Carter of Mars because <laughs> it was a fire sale <laughs> on the Modifius site. And like everybody else, it seems I <laughs> I succumbed. Yeah, and bought a lot I of bought stuff. it too. Oh, you didn't. Yeah, you didn't. know what? I bet. I bet you can't buy John Carter from Mars anymore. I bet they've sold out. It's now become a rare item. You can't get it. It's out of print. It's gone. Yeah. Everyone bought it. <laughs> it's old, isn't it? Because... Rule book. Rule book and, and the Games Master screen. Always get the Games Master screen. Always get it. Did you get the Games Master screen? I did get it. I did get it. Because... Of course you did. Of course you did. Because that's the golden rule. Always get the Games Master screen. As uh, Dave said in the uh, Frankenstein's RPG special that we did from Grogme, uh, the Modifius Games Master screens are good as well because they give you tools for a Games Master to uh, generate uh, ideas and stories, and they are quite sophisticated and good. I just find it amazing that this game that uh, had a lot of exposure when it came out in 2019, I think it was. I think we saw it at UK Games Expo. And I was picking it yeah. up and looking at it. There's like demo games taking place there. It's, it's given a, been given a new lease of life by being injected into the community. <laughs> yeah. Due to a sale. Made, made, it, made it kind of, to use a gangster phrase, an offer you can't refuse. Exactly. You know, so cheap. It was so cheap. I think I got, the rule book and the Games Master screen for it gives something like 13 quid, 14 yeah. quid or something. Yeah, like. yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I, like, I quite like the John Carter film. Got a bit of panning, didn't it? But I think I, I kind of enjoyed it, actually. That was okay. And I, I read uh, John Carter a long time ago uh, because of the Moorcock uh, connection, because he wrote a couple of John Carter novellas. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And I've always, I liked it because it is a, a good setting for... Uh, adventure um, and it's the 2d20 system which we enjoyed with the corner so it'd be interesting to go back to it and see whether it works a mm. bit of a lighter version of it isn't it then? yeah I, thought, I found that quite appealing that it, it is a sort of lighter slightly lighter version i think my mistake was thinking that all the 2d20 games are the same so you think you think to yourself, all oh, right, they're all the same, they're all the same rules. But I suppose it's like free league, isn't it? They're not really. There's different um, complexities either cranked up or cranked down a bit. And the John Carter games are a little bit simpler, isn't it? A bit more straightforward than some of the other 2D20 games. So we'll have to put that on the list of things we're going to play. So the question is, uh, Judge Blythe, in your capacity as judge, does it count? Because it was so cheap. Does it count as a purchase in this quarter? No, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. This is how you I, get. I think if I think if a game less than fifty percent of the retail price, it doesn't count because it's such a good bargain that you can't be accused or blamed for buying it. That is my ruling. So one it, full price game per quarter. One full price game per quarter. That's my ruling on the matter. Would you agree? Of course, I agree. Seems reasonable. Of course, I agree. And if we've learned nothing from uh, studying gangbusters, uh, Noble the Judge is the first step. (laughs) (laughs) Noble the Judge with a a free Games Master screen. (laughs) Send him a free Games Master screen. More than happy. (laughs) I'll say whatever you want. (laughs) Cheers, Blyder. Cheers, bye. Bye. (laughs)
Come on, you slag. Wake up. Come on. Come on, wake up. Uh-huh. <clears throat> okay. Uh-huh. Uh. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And thanks especially to the patrons for their kickbacks that keep this thing of ours going. I still haven't quite got gangsters out of my system, so there's going to be something a little extra on its way soon. Leaving it behind is the hardest part. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. I can't get decent snacks. I order some hobnobs with chocolate covering and I got an oldie substitute. I can average nobody. I get to live my life as a schnook. Adios, amigos. Thank <laughs> you.